I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Michelle Weiss. Michelle is a renowned thought leader and author. She is an entrepreneur in residence and senior advisor with the U.S. Global Education Team of Imaginable Futures. Before that, Michelle served as Chief Innovation Officer of Strata Education Network. Her writing has appeared in The Economist. The Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review, and her most recent book, Long Life Learning. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We are going to get right into it. You have done a ton of work in disruption innovation. So what does that mean to disrupt? When you think of disrupt, what does that mean to you? Yes. So actually, this is uh, this comes from the theories of Clayton Christensen, of course. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask him uh, if he were still alive today, uh, he would have actually said that he regrets calling it a disruptive innovation precisely because we use the word disrupt so often mm-hmm. and we use it quite willy-nilly. And he had a very specific meaning for yeah. what he called a disruptive innovation. And that is something that really is touching a population of people who whose alternative is nothing at all. And mm. what happens is these entrants come into a market and they disrupt the sustaining trajectory of the people, the organizations that are really enjoying the most success in that market. So just as an example, for, for instance, um, if you think about computing, and the original mainframe computers, and then the next version were these mini computers that were sort of the size of podiums. Um, When the personal computer came out, it wasn't geared toward the people who owned mini computers and mainframe Mm. computers. It was really geared towards those people who we call non-consumers or people for whom the alternative is nothing at all. And so they were really delighted by actually the crummy quality of those personal computers because they had absolutely nothing else to compare it to. And over time, those computers evolved to actually meet the needs of the people who were actually leveraging mini computers and mainframe computers. So it's this idea that something mm. starts off as just good enough and improves over time to ultimately disrupt that market and take over 
what used to be sort of the uh, under the ownership of that incumbent organization. Michelle, we're going to talk a lot about, obviously, about work and education, especially with your new book. But your example there has has gotten me thinking, uh, the example with the computers. What's another example, apart from work and education, what's another example that can get us understanding, that can get us thinking, that can help me and our listeners wrap our head around a little bit more what you mean by this disruptive innovation? So another probably uh, simpler example that I probably should have started with is uh, is the car industry. So mm. if we go back, um, to, you know, to the yeah. 1980s and we think about sort of, you know, the big three automotive um, companies based out of Michigan, you know, Cadillacs, we had uh, some incredibly um, great machines that America was building. And mm-hmm. then Toyota comes out with this tiny little car mm. called a Corona. And it's not a Corolla, but a Corona. And it was this very, very small car that kind of rusted easily. It broke down a lot. Um, it wasn't the greatest car, but the audience mm. for whom it was geared toward were people who used to walk or ride the bus. Mm-hmm. They had nothing else to compare it to. They okay. weren't the ones in that consumer market that were going to buy those Cadillacs. And what's fascinating is, um, you know, the big three manufacturers, they saw that there was this thing emerging on the side, but they thought it was very low quality. So they tried to create also a lower end version of, of, of a car and they built things like Pintos, but they realized this wasn't a great market for them. They could make mm. so much more money on selling bigger and better and faster Cadillacs. So they kind of moved in that sustaining trajectory but what they didn't realize is that Toyota was going to get better over time and mm. come out with the Camry and ultimately shift into the Lexus brand of vehicles to mm. ultimately upend that industry. So it's this idea that you get a toehold first with people who have nothing else to compare it to, these non-consumers, and then it improves over time. This isn't just like an instantaneous thing. It is a process that sometimes takes multiple tech decades to come to fruition and mm. over time you, and you do need to have some sort of technological enabler that helps that company kind of move up market and take over um, but that is the general trajectory it's something that starts in the margins it's just good enough it yeah. improves over time to ultimately fit the needs of the consumers in the center of that market Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for that second example. We have the computers, we have, you know, the car manufacturing. Uh, that's really helpful. As you're explaining this, I'm, I'm sort of starting to wonder, is this the way that you would say disruption needs to happen? Is this the ideal? Is this the, the path to follow? Or is this just a way um, for innovation to happen that's equal with the ways that the examples that you're sort of giving? So it's not that I think it should happen in this way. It is a way to describe the behavior in a mm. market when we have seen these massive monolithic companies that were at the you know at their peak unable to sustain that success. So when Christensen was trying to understand what was going on, why was it so hard to sustain success? This is the phenomenon that he found he was able to describe, and he has been able to do mm. it by looking at the disk drive industry and the steel industry. Mm. You can really kind of look at every single industry to find these markers where you have to have a certain convergence of vectors that come into play, which is 
You need some sort of technological enabler. You need these non-consumers. And then you also need new business channels. You can't just stick it into the existing business channel of an organization. This is what's Mm. so hard is the ones who are winning originally in a market, well, it's not that they're unaware that these other sorts of entrants exist, but when they try to incorporate it into their existing business channels, uh, they are unable to make it work hmm. because that sustaining trajectory is so it's so attractive to just keep doing what you're doing and make money uh, instead of trying to do this very different kind of play and business model. So this is this is the challenge, and we see this. Um, you know, if we think about it in the case of higher education as an example, mm-hmm. there are a lot of institutions out there that see really interesting sorts of innovative mm-hmm. solutions cropping up, but they notice that when they try to incorporate it into their existing model, it's inordinately difficult to make it work. It ends up kind of going through this sausage making machine where it ends up being less interesting than when they first kind of identified it because it doesn't work within that existing business channel. You need to kind of create an autonomous unit Mm. that can facilitate a whole new kind of growth market strategy around that new idea. So you're saying it's it's almost impossible for that sort of innovation to work within that traditional infrastructure. It is. It, it's it's really difficult. Mm. Uh, even within uh, traditional kind of for-profit businesses, um, the the examples are few and far between. Wow. When when Christian and Christensen and his researchers looked at different models, you know there were versions of this uh, early on when IBM did start making those personal computers. Yep. There there are different examples like um, when Target first emerged. Um, uh, as a sort of low-end retailer or HP kind of differentiating their laser and inkjet um, mm-hmm. businesses. But really, it's it's a handful of organizations that can do this from within. It often involves, um, it's just, again, it's so hard to mm. shift away from the thing that is making you great revenue or great pop- profit. Interesting. I want to pause here for a couple of reasons. I want to pause and say, go back and listen to an episode with John Couch a couple episodes ago uh, when this is when this is going to be aired. And uh, and he was at the forefront with Apple talking about that disruptive innovation. Him and Steve Jobs helped uh, you know start that company. So go back, listen to that and listen to it through this lens that Michelle is, is sort of guiding us through. That's really helpful. Uh, another reason I want to pause is you've brought up Clayton Christensen a couple of times already, and he has been a mentor for you. He was a mentor for you. He has had a big impact on your thinking. What are some of the ways he most challenged and helped your thinking? That's a good question. I mean, like everyone who has had the opportunity to work closely with him he changed my worldview entirely. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that has been most discernible that I've realized over time is how my stance toward the future mm-hmm. is far more positive and constructive because of him and because of the theories. So um, when I'm talking about these things, uh, as we're talking about these disruptive innovations, often there is this impulse that we just have as humans to see newness and perceive newness as danger yeah. or to see this new thing as mm, that's low quality I don't I don't that has nothing to do with what I do and we we have this impulse to sort of squash and scorn mm. these new things but what clay taught me was to this 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 
this term just good enough is these are his words where that thing actually might have the markers of what is just good enough to get that toehold in the market. Mm. And so, you know, when I am, uh, you know, advising different organizations and we're looking at different phenomena that we see kind of occurring on the sides, this is a really helpful way in which to just take a beat and reflect on that thing that we feel, you know, compelled to dismiss and scorn and disparage mm. and think, wait a second, this might actually be something worth paying attention to. So it helps me take a look at even the most basic and sort of low grade versions of those early uh, early entrants just to say, interesting, you know, they're hitting almost every single marker here, even though it's not like the most refined thing that I'm looking at. They are actually making, you know, happen that kind of really mm. important convergence of vectors. So for me, it's that openness to consider things that, you know, the amygdala in our brain is just sort of saying, shut it down, like figure out a way to kill that idea. We yeah. just have these in, just kind of incredible impulses uh, in our brains to just uh, to, 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 to not let that new innovation in. Hearing you talk about seeing things in a positive way makes me also wonder if it might be difficult for you to look at all the things that are wrong that need to be disrupted and to not have an overly critical view. So for me, if I'm looking around, oh, this needs to change, this needs to change, this needs to change, rather than like you're talking about envisioning uh, the possibilities, is that a difficult thing for you to manage? It's an interesting question. So when I was writing this book, which deals directly with this, these concepts of the future of work and the future of education, when you look at the literature on the future of work, it is quite easy to get down and mm. get negative yeah. because there's so much emphasis on the future obsolescence of millions and millions of jobs, right? The, mm -hmm. you know, they're there are some statistics where maybe 47% of the U.S. workforce is at risk of automation. And then others are saying, oh, maybe it's like 25%, but it's still mm -hmm. 36 million jobs, yeah. right? And these numbers are so huge yeah. that they're hard to grasp. And it's really, I started writing the book and just trying to capture the landscape of, you know, the kinds of prognostications and what's been said. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is absolutely depressing. Like, how do I shift us out of all of this inertia and paralysis and move us towards action? So mm -hmm. it was just kind of this fascinating exercise where I probably got rid of, you know, a good hundred pages of work oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, I realized that that's been done before. And mm. the thing that would be the thing that we need is a way to move toward action and and think about movement building because it is really hard to look at the fact that even prior to the pandemic we had over 40 million Americans who were not thriving in the labor market mm. it's hard to look at that and not do anything right so how do we actually shift our focus instead of on the future of work to the future of workers and so mm. the book is really about elevating people's voices, understanding um, and making more nuanced our conception of what it means to be an adult learner 
and what it means to be a working learner, because we're yeah. all going to have to embody that position of having to kind of juggle education and work simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, your book, Long Life Learning, which if you're listening and you haven't read it, uh, you should. You should go get it and read it. I've read it. It's wonderful. Now, the book is, you know, from my perspective, it's a book about innovatively disrupting the way education is experienced for workers who are preparing for jobs that aren't around yet. Okay, so that's my like one sentence uh, synopsis mm -hmm. of the book. I like it. So <laughs> what made you aware that higher education and work-life training needs to be disrupted? So bring us into that moment where your mind zeroed in, your passion zeroed in, you thought, yes, this is the thing that I am going to write about. What really sort of got me going was hearing and reading about these prognostications that, you know, the first people to live to be 150 mm -hmm. years old had already been born. Mm -hmm. And this concept of longer life, a long life, right, was really helpful in yeah. just spurring a new mental model for me. Because as we think about, you know, whether or not we believe it, right, if we just kind of use the just further extrapolate from where we are today, because the data actually shows us that people today are experiencing 12 job changes by the time they retire. Mm. Um, and if we just extend our work lives just a little bit longer, because this is already happening, where people are staying in the workforce well into their 60s and 70s. If we just say, hmm, maybe our work lives might become 50 years long, 60, mm -hmm. 80, or 100 years. It becomes impossible to think through or reconcile the idea that somehow two or four years of education on the front end of that much longer, more turbulent mm -hmm. work life will somehow sustain us, right? Yeah. So for me, that was really helpful. And even if we just extrapolated a little bit forward out of that, that notion of 12 job changes by the time early baby boomers are retiring, and we just bump it up to 20 mm. or 30, right? And then wow. we just think about one job change today and how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And especially as you think about early on that first transition from higher education to the workforce, we bungle that so badly for our learners, where 43% of our newly minted grads end up in jobs that never required that college degree in the first place. They are underemployed. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. phenomenon isn't just something that exists for like a blip in time where it's, ah, in three months, they'll, they'll, they'll launch their career. Yeah. It persists five and 10 years out. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't do a great job of launching learners that first time around, how in the world will we do this 20 or 30 times over? So for me, that was the thing that just sort of triggered it all. Yeah, as I was reading it, uh, one of the aspects that I really appreciated uh, was the stories, right? The who. Why is it important to understand the who in this story to wrestle with the who instead of being bogged down in the what or you know, the data, which why the data is important, but why is it important to to keep the who at the forefront? Yeah, I think one of the best explanations of this actually comes from Simon Sinek, who has sort of talked about um, the role of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how he was able to sort of spur the civil rights movement in ways that leaders before him just weren't able to. And one of the things he identifies is homing in all these on these very small, poignant stories. Mm -hmm. And so in the I Have a Dream speech, what is powerful 
is that Dr. King actually identifies, you know, little black girls or little black children playing with little white children, right? And you can see them kind of holding hands. You can picture this very small image and it gives us something really powerful to grasp onto, to move from something to another state. Mm. It's kind of from to. And for me, I think that that really does capture um, why it's so critical to tell the stories. It doesn't matter how much data anyone brings to the table. The Mm -hmm. thing that people remember are the stories, right? It's that one anecdote. And for me, it was really critical to, to make this book not just me spouting off on what I think should happen, but really to make sure that we understand that it comes from the learners themselves. It comes from the people themselves who are bumping up against these constraints. And it's interesting that so many of these interviews are coalescing around the same challenges. Mm -hmm. So we can't ignore those. And it gives us a way forward to think through, okay, if we can solve for these specific pain points and we design in a more universal way, it's going to actually affect all of us so that we can all rely on this same system because we're going to have to navigate those 20, 30 job changes in the future. Is there a story in your book, you know, the who that you think drives your point home the best? Early on uh, in the book, I share the story of uh, of this uh, older woman who is talking about how she is cleaning houses. She's working at these medical offices. Mm-hmm. She is um, riding her bicycle across town to, you know, three to five different jobs she's juggling at the same time. Then she's caring for her family. And at night, she's sewing wedding dresses on her kitchen table while the kids are watching TV. You know, it's this kind of litany of one job after the next that she is stitching, like all of these different part-time jobs that she is stitching together to make ends meet all by herself. Hmm. And I think that is just sort of emblematic. It's not an unusual case. As striking as her story is, in so many of these different interviews we did, we learned from these people that they were really just in this constant hustle. They were, you know, they didn't have full-time employment. They didn't have access to benefits and they were really dealing with just a lot of life all at once. Mm. And so um, those are the stories that kind of are, are just sort of so profound, right? When you think about all of that, all of the things that serve as barriers to advancement, And you hear these stories of, you know, one of these younger women was saying that she combines all of her classes onto a Saturday because that's the only time she has available Mm. to pursue education. And she's there for nearly 10 to 12 hours a day. And she's pumping breast milk at school, (laughs) walking home, delivering those bottles Mm. to her baby and doing this because this is the only way in which she can she can fit her life into the sort of rigidity of our traditional mm. structures of higher education. It is profound, right? And and it yeah. tells the story better than I ever mm-hmm. could. So let's keep that story in mind. You know, let's envision the story as if it were a picture, right? It's a picture we're looking at. What are some of the things or what were some of the features that tried to blur the picture, that tried to make the story in a way that, oh, we'll just ignore it. We won't look at it. What were some hurdles or barriers you had to break through so that you could see this story and then you could, you know, share it with us in your book. I think one of the the most powerful things to uncover was 
the lack of self-confidence um, mm. that existed in the learners where um, they it, it's it's really hard to sort of move forward when when everything feels so rigged. And there was this sense that um, not only did they not understand sort of the skills gaps that they had that they needed to fill, but they couldn't envision a possibility ahead of themselves that they hadn't seen before. Hmm. It was really hard for them to understand that even though they had been working in retail or hospitality, they knew there were these other things that they were interested in, but they they didn't think it was even worth entertaining. Um, and so like this lack of uh, both awareness and confidence in oneself is something that was really kind of fascinating to uncover. And, and we couldn't really sort of put a name to it early on. It, mm. was, it was just sort of, um, it was this sort of negative uh, element that was coming mm -hmm. out. But then we realized it is, it is just part and parcel of the ways in which they've been dogged by these different barriers in the past and never given a fair shot. Um, and so it kind of became part of the way in which they viewed what was possible. Mm. And this is also on us in terms yeah. of the larger sort of ecosystem of players mm -hmm. out there. We actually have data now that can help learners understand what truly are transferable skills that you can port from one domain to another. But it's so difficult in mm. terms of the different kinds of infrastructure that we have around data to knit that data together. So it's on, it's, it's, it's not on the um, individual to sort of figure them, figure this all out for themselves. Uh, we have to figure out how they can get access to these different sorts of pathways and tools and resources that do exist. But for most people, they don't even know that they, they, they're just not aware of them. Michelle, so how do we do this, right? Help us think about the pathway forward. What are some big pillars? What are some guiding posts that you think are imperative to have as things move forward? Yep. So there are five. There are five kind of guiding principles that we just need to keep in mind as we look at all the different kinds of services and innovations and organizations out there. What we need to keep in mind is that for the future, in order for us to thrive and navigate more seamless movements in and out of learning and work, <clears throat> and to make it through those multiple job and career changes, we need a new learning ecosystem that is fundamentally more navigable, more supported, more targeted, more integrated, and more transparent. Mm -hmm. And these, again, are the things that all those interviews we're sort of coalescing around these five principles. Hmm. And so when I talk about navigable, navigable, I can't <laughs> even say it. <laughs> when I talk about navigation, um, <laughs> we are talking about, you know, career navigation and ways to identify and surface all the kind of hidden skills that we bring to the table, as well as our formal credential, as well as ways of capturing you know, the capabilities we've developed through work experience and our lived experience and understand what gaps we need to fill. Like we need that kind of help to just guide mm -hmm. us at least, you know, to make that first step forward. Yeah. And we need human touch points. We need coaching. We need these kind of wraparound support services. Sometimes they're going to be chatbots and tech enabled support services and platforms, but other times it's really going to be about human touch and mm -hmm. advising and someone I can trust. 
Mm. Then we're going to need, you know, more targeted educational opportunities because we're not all going to have to go back and get a degree or another degree or another certificate. Sometimes we're just going to need, you know, four competencies just to move forward. Mm. So how do we get precisely that in order to just kind of keep moving forward? Mm. And then how do we make sure these are integrated into the workday and embedded and experiential and hands-on and that we don't have to do this on top of everything else going on in our lives? And then Mm. when I talk about transparency, I'm talking about skills-based hiring practices so that we're not always relying on degrees or pedigrees to give people a fair shot at jobs? How do people have the opportunity to prove they can do the work ahead? So these five pieces are critical for moving forward. And it's not just about one of those pieces. Like Mm. when we think about innovations today, we can think of hundreds of innovations that can fit into those five different areas, but very few of them actually stitch together three or five of those principles. And we need this kind of new behavior to occur Mm. across all the stakeholders in our system, across policymakers, technologists, reformers, philanthropists, venture capitalists, employers to kind of move forward and stitch these solutions together in a way that any person understands how to do this and understands who to call, where to go, you know, how to identify the right learning pathway. We need all of this stuff to come together in service of the learner. From an outsider perspective, not in higher ed, uh, it seems to me that some institutions are trying to change, right? They're trying Mm -hmm. to switch things up. They're trying to help. They're trying to do things different. But, uh, you know, from someone that's in higher ed, like yourself and others, it probably seems very slow going. Michelle, what's an innovation that you've been excited about? One of the solutions I'm most excited about is this platform that's called Mersion. It's spelled M-U-R-S-I-O-N. And what it does is it does scenario-based sort of formative assessments where in a very low stakes environment, you get to practice your human skills. So when we think about the skills that are critical for the future of work, we know we're going to have to complement the work of machines or augment the work of machines. There are certain things we just have to relinquish to machine learning artificial intelligence to computerization. There are ways in which we have certain assets that we bring to the table, but these are skills that aren't just innate in us, right? When we think about communication, systems thinking, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, it's not that we just have easy access to these skills. These are things we need to practice. And so what Mersion does is they really kind of democratize the coaching process. It's not just for executives or mid-level managers. It is for frontline workers as well. And you have these opportunities to work with these avatars on the screen and negotiate or give or receive feedback. And it's these really fascinating learning opportunities where you're dealing with, you know, multiple avatars on the screen who are behaving in a certain way. You can read their nonverbal gestures and cues and respond and react and You know, for any of us who have ever had to lead a team and give that kind of feedback, it's one of the most difficult things to do. And we only get practice Mm -hmm. often in the moment. And then we often botch it, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. (laughs) how do we we get access to ways of practicing the sorts of skills we need? And it's a fascinating model, too, as we think about older and more mature learners who need Mm. to skill up. 
in the workforce, we tend to think of reskilling activities often with this more this connotation of technical or technological skills, right? That we're going to somehow need access to more technical expertise to remain relevant in the workforce. But that's not true. We actually also need to broaden those human skills. Mm-hmm. And a platform like Mergen actually offers that opportunity to, to, to do that in that very low stakes environment. Yeah, that does sound exciting. I, I haven't heard of that, but I'll, I'll definitely have to check it out. I want to circle back uh, a bit with an example. So I'm going to share an example, and then I'm going to ask you to sort of give your insight input into the example. So we're going to take my sister, Jessica. Hey, Jessica, if you're listening, she didn't give my permission to do this, but I'm sure she's fine. Um, she's in her 30s. Uh, she has kids. Uh, she's switching gears and entering education, right? She wants to be a teacher. Um, she already has a bachelor's degree, right? But she doesn't have a teacher certification. And and she's going along. She's getting into it. But, you know, believe me, it's been difficult for her. There's been tons of barriers. And, you know, if it wasn't for me teaching her everything she knows, just kidding, Jess, uh, you know, you did a lot of hard work. Um, but let's look at that example, right? Because she's not unique. You've talked about things like this in your book. Let's disrupt this. How could we look at this differently? How do you envision something like Jessica, you know, in 10, 15 years? How would it be better for her to go through this situation? Yeah. And sorry, is Jessica 100% sure this is the direction she wants to go in terms of teaching? Or is it just something that she kind of has identified as a possibility? Uh, you know, I think Jessica's confused. She needs help. Yeah. No, I'm just, no, she's she's identified it. She's tried other things. Uh, paralegal. She was in, you know, a waitress doing different uh, hospitality things. Um, and then she zeroed in like, yeah, I want to go in education. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, in the book, I, I talk about Steve, who mm-hmm. who also thinks he wants to go into education, but partly it's because yeah. it's the one thing he's familiar with, or he thinks he would be good with children. And again, to that point of sometimes we're not always able to envision a future for ourselves. Um, I did a lot of work with hmm. service members transitioning out of the military into civilian careers. And it was fascinating to hear them talk themselves into going into policing or security work because that was the sort of linear pathway they saw ahead of themselves. Hmm. Um, In a better ecosystem, what Jess would have um, access to are different sorts of assessments that would open Hmm. her eyes to other possibilities that maybe she didn't actually identify for herself or even imagine possible. Or maybe that assessment might confirm Yes, mm. you should maybe start moving in this direction. And here are the gaps you need to fill. Here are the um, the sort of list of training providers or education providers mm. that are regional and local to you, where they have these you know part time learning pathways or income share agreement related opportunities, where that institution is actually betting on the outcomes of you being able to find mm-hmm. gainful employment and pay back this loan, right? And mm. so. In when I talk about sort of stitching together solutions, it's this idea that in our confused state, we would be able to gain some sort of clarity through these different sorts of assessment mechanisms with the help of a coach, with an advisor guiding us along on the side to say, Hmm. oh my goodness, I have, you know, these three to five pathways ahead that I could pursue. And then I could look into 
what kinds of companies might I work for? What are the kinds of jobs I could get? And what are the kinds of earnings I might expect if I were to go in that direction? We don't even have those kinds of Hmm. easily transparent and accessible mobility pathways for ourselves, right? Hmm. So these are the sorts of things that would exist in terms of some sort of guidance system or um, skills compass. And then there would be kind of the ways in which we actually execute that learning experience. So where do we go? How do we pay for it? It would Mm -hmm. give us all the clues on how we might fit this into our lives and then also have an employer validated at the end and give us that endorsement for that learning experience by giving a shot, giving us Mm -hmm. a shot at that job. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, you're the expert in, in this field. But I don't think there's a lot of guidance out there. Like even these institutions that are doing things a little bit differently, it's from my understanding, they're not guiding you. They're not walking you through it. They're not helping to facilitate what's going on. Is that a correct you know, perspective for me? It is. It's, it's something that career counselors struggle with mm. um, within the confines of an institution. They want to be more hands-on in terms of providing that guidance, but often there are these silos within an institution where the faculty advising isn't necessarily coordinated with career advising. So we're not doing a good job of helping our learners translate their skills into the language of the labor market. That's mm. why we have so much underemployment. There are actually, we, we know, for instance, for liberal arts majors, if they were to minor or get an internship or some sort of co-op opportunity in one of eight areas, it includes things like graphic design and accounting. Mm-hmm. If they were just to get a little bit skilled up in, this, in, in one of these eight areas, it would actually double the opportunities they would be eligible for. We have data like this, but this isn't something you can just sort of tack on at the end in your final semester Mm. as a senior in college. Some of these things you have to build in early on. Like if you're going to be a journalist, you need to have some skills in Tableau, right? You need to Mm -hmm. have real web development skills. And these aren't things you can just do in a week or two, right? So how do we build those and embed those work-based learning opportunities earlier on for students? We don't do that well. And we certainly don't do that for more mature learners. You're absolutely right. Yeah, let's take Steve in your book, because I did wonder this, and I wanted to ask you about this. Um, So Steve, who is providing him the guidance, and who is paying these people that's providing Steve guidance? So he has this person coming alongside of him and saying, you know, try this, do this. What do you think about that? But in real life, or the life that we're experiencing, Oftentimes, we're not getting that guidance, and I was just wondering, where's that coming from? Ideally, it would come from a workforce investment board. Mm. But again, as we think about access to these different kinds of innovations, a lot of workforce investment boards don't even know that I think the majority of these innovations that I feature in the book exist, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a problem. We have a lot of siloed activity. But that would be the perfect place for people, these, you know, America's job centers, to be the place where learners can kind of get um, get access to that information. Mm. I think in the future, we're going to see more community-based organizations and faith-based organizations and libraries taking mm. a much um, bigger role in this kind of guidance work. You also see universities trying to think through what would it look like to create a subscription model, mm. right? Because for our graduates, they trust us already. And maybe they'll come to us as trusted advisors to sort of curate the best learning opportunity for them. 
Hmm. So there, there are different ways in which we can see who might bear the onus of some of this work. In terms of funding, I think we're going to see very interesting apprenticeship models emerge where you're going to see more tight-knit collaborations between employers and different sorts of on-ramps and alternative learning providers where the employer is going to want to figure out how to access a more diverse talent pool. And you get that by removing degree requirements and going for people who maybe only have a high school degree. And they're going to be able to test out these people who are being skilled up rapidly through these different kinds of on-ramp programs like Tectonic or Merit America or Kenzie Academy or IC Stars. There's a a whole slew of these different kinds of groups that are building on-ramps in healthcare, advanced manufacturing, cybersecurity, data science. And they're going to be able to test out the folks to see, do these people actually have the skills? And they'll start to feel more comfortable with these talent pools that they traditionally overlooked. And they're Mm going to pay in new ways for that talent, whether it's through different kinds of staffing agencies or different sorts of, um, you know, try before you buy apprenticeship models. So I think we're going to see some real innovation there. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. Michelle, this has been great talking to you today. As we wind things down, who do you want to give a shout out to? I would love to give a a shout out to my team at Strata Institute for the Future of Work, who really did the bulk of all of those interviews and the research around, you know, how we get at these more nuanced stories and elevate those voices. Um, And then, of course, uh, some of the mentors that in my life, like Gunnar Councilman, Will Zemp and Michael Horn. Shout out to you all. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? One of the biggest challenges is that we have siloed and rigidly linear systems in which all of us are going to have to sort of somehow force fit our nonlinear realities into. And I think the companies, the employers, And the education and training providers that are going to survive and thrive in the future are the ones that actually begin to really bend to the different circumstances and the challenges that we all face as we try to juggle education and work at the same time. And they're Mm -hmm. going to, instead of making us force fit our lives into their systems, they will really do a much more deliberate job of meeting us where we are and giving us precisely what we need in order to move seamlessly on our way forward. Michelle, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep, EDU. I appreciate your time, sharing your experiences, and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning into Diving Deep, EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. 
until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.